reading this morning is from the last chapter of Luke. Luke chapter 24, starting with verse 13. Now that same day, two of them, that's two of Jesus' followers, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor in Jerusalem and you do not know what the things that have happened here these days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth? They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said, he's alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they didn't see. He said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And their eyes were opened. They recognized him. <laughs> and he he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture with us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem and there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and he has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the precious word of God. Thank you, John. So Brian, I'm going to have you standing right here. I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> So um, 
you know, like our church, we don't get things right all, all the time. Actually, often. Amen? <laughs> all right. We're honest here, right? <laughs> Love it. Um, but I think the one thing that I know uh, deep in my heart about uh, this church as a church is that it's a praying church. And they've been praying for you. They've been praying for Myrna, the ministry of the word. And we could see the fruits of it. And so it's been a joy to be able to, to pray uh, for you and, and with you. And I just want to, uh, on behalf of the congregation and the church leadership team, like I, I want to say thank you for, for preaching and teaching with excellence. But more importantly, for love. The love that you have. You know, even though you, you've known us for such a short time, you, you could tell that pastoral heart coming out. The love that you have for us and for, for the Lord. Uh, and, and the thing that's most striking for me, because I, I think these two things are very fundamental, but uh, that you spoke very vulnerably. Uh, I felt like you weren't teaching down on us, but you, you walk with us and you share from your life and that pastoral heart, like it's just gold. Like it's just, you can't trade it for anything. So thank you. I was going to give you a contract extension. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but uh, as I said in the 9 a.m. service, the more important person is uh, Myrna. Uh, I know this to be true because I'm a pastor, and I've walked this, I think, long enough to understand what, you know, what it means to carry alongside with your spouse, the, the work of ministry. Um, I've seen it happen with my dad as a pastor. Uh, I've seen that happen uh, in my father-in-law who was in pastoral ministry for 40 years. And, and my mother-in-law just, you know, she was just amazing, has been and is continuing to be so. And so, Myrna, you have shaped Brian. <laughs> <laughs> To be the person that he is, and so thank you, Myrna. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. So, with that said, would you would you join me as we pray for Brian? Living God, we thank you for the gift of Brian, his ministry here with us, his ministry uh, in the city, uh, as he's coaching, training, leading, and directing. Uh, other pastors, uh, other individuals who deeply need you. We thank you that you have been at work in him and through him uh, in the city. Amen. And we pray for more of that, Lord, uh, in the years to come. At this moment, as uh, Brian preaches, uh, will the words that are burning in his bones, the words that are burning in his heart, just start flowing out. Mm. And we ask that your Holy Spirit will illuminate the word. Mm. We ask that the Holy Spirit will empower uh, Brian, fill him with joy and hope as he preaches. Mm. And we ask that the Holy Spirit will open our eyes to see Jesus mm. this morning. Yeah. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Justin. Justin, when you said that you had been a pastor for how many years? 20? Well, where's the gray hair? 
you do not look old enough to have pastored that long. Um, you know, we wondered if this thing was going to work, uh, us coming to First Baptist for seven weeks, and, you know, Myrna and I were praying into this, and we're trusting that it was going to be fruitful and fun and life-giving. And then Justin invited all the pastors to meet me halfway between Cloverdale and Vancouver in New Westminster. And we met in a cool little pub down there, one that I had never been to before, and we all shared burgers together. And I went home after meeting with about eight or nine of your staff, and I said to Myrna, honey, it's going to be okay. Uh, these are really good people, and I think we're going to have a lot of fun, and we really have. So thank you so much for opening your hearts to us. So let's get back to the text, to the Emmaus story. The artists have just loved the story of the Emmaus encounter. Uh, I love this painting for so many reasons. I mean, it's so beautiful, but notice the three crosses that mirror the three images, the three people in the foreground. It's that middle cross that Jesus is explaining to Cleopas and his partner or his wife. I love this next painting as well, very expressionistic. But notice what Jesus is doing. With one hand, he's gripping the hand of his new friend. And with the other hand, it's extended up in the air in the posture of divine proclamation. So though Jesus is, has risen from the dead and is proclaiming the meaning of his death and resurrection, he has a very firm grip on the ones that he is ministering to. Many of you will recognize this next painting by Caravaggio. Uh, their eyes have just been opened to the fact that it's Jesus that's with them, and the guy on the left is about to rocket out of his chair, and the guy on the right, well, he's, uh, he's surprised to say the least. Caravaggio even made sure that the bowl of fruit was affected. It's very precariously dangling on the side of the table. Everything, all creation has been affected by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then this one, uh, painted in 1620 by 17th century Diego Velasquez, a Spanish artist. Notice that Jesus and the two um, travelers are still having dinner. So their eyes have not been opened yet. They're still feasting, but there is a moor, a female black slave who is cleaning up after dinner, but she is visibly shaken. What's going on? What is Diego Velasquez saying? Notice she's dropped her rag. The dishes are askew. Some have been turned upside down. She's bracing herself at the table. What's going on with this black slave girl? Well, Velasquez is saying that often... It's those who are on the margin of society who have their spiritual eyes opened to the presence of Jesus before those who are in power. In this case, it's not the homeowners who see Jesus first. It's the most unlikely one. And of course, this was during a time in Spain's history where Christians uh, had black Moor, Moorish Muslim slaves. So you're saying, well, that's a very political painting. It is indeed. Easter is highly political. Caesar is not Lord at all. Jesus is Lord. And it's this very thing that's so alluring and provocative about the Maus encounter because the eyes of Cleopas and his partner are, are closed until Jesus leaves the scene, until the story is basically over. They seem to be blinded by divine agency. 
Or putting it another way, God didn't want them to recognize the physical Jesus in the way that I'm recognizing you right now, or you're recognizing me. This was Operation Incognito. For some reason, maybe ours to discover this morning, the two disciples weren't supposed to recognize Jesus, but they were supposed to encounter him through other means of grace. So putting it another way, the experience of Jesus would precede and validate the physical recognition of Jesus. They wouldn't be able to say, it's Jesus who was at our house until after his pastoral ministry with them was over. So in light of that, here's my big idea. Could it be that the unique experience that we read about that Cleopas and his wife had with the risen Jesus is a pattern for the way the New Testament church is to continue to experience the risen Jesus. Because in so many ways, we are just like them. We say unapologetically, Jesus is alive and he's here right now, but we can't see him. We don't recognize him. We can't say with the Apostle John, we saw him with our eyes and we touched him with our hands. No, but we do proclaim that he is here. Before we explore this a little more, a few months ago, I was interviewed on a podcast and I was asked to explain by the host why I believe that the physical in-person gathering of the church is indispensable for the church's future. She said, come on, Brian, in light of COVID, in light of disease, in light of technology, in light of the fact that we can hear the best preachers whenever we want just by pressing a button, why spend the money on staff and brick and mortar and programs? Why don't we just do church online? And I said, here are my top 10 reasons. I won't give those to you today, (laughs) but I will give you one. This was reason number four. I said to her, I believe that the gathered worshiping community is indispensable because the last vision that we have of the risen Jesus in the Bible is of him standing in the midst of the candlesticks. And you're going, I have no idea what you are talking about. (laughs) Ah, in the book of Revelation in chapter 1, John was exiled or in prison on the island of Patmos, and he had no leadership with the seven churches that he was overseeing, and the churches were really suffering and being persecuted. On the Lord's Day, it says he was in the Spirit, and he received a vision of the risen Jesus standing in front of him. John says, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand upon me, and he said, do not be afraid, John, for I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore, and in my hand I hold the keys to death and Hades. Then Jesus said, write down therefore what you see and hear. Then he said, the mystery of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So where was Jesus? Walking in the midst of the churches. Jesus was in the churches. He was saying to John, it doesn't matter that you're the bishop and you cannot be with those churches. I am the bishop and I am with my church. You cannot separate the bride from the bridegroom. 
or the cornerstone from the building or the head from the body. It's okay. I've got my church, and if you want to meet me, I'm there. Then he said something, and I didn't take the time to say this in the first service, but this is the second service, and I think I have one more minute. Is that true? Okay, five, five extra minutes. He then said, the mystery of the seven stars that's in my right hand is this. The seven stars that I'm gripping firmly are the seven angels of the seven churches or the seven messengers of the seven churches. These are the seven pastors of the seven churches. Are you worried about your staff? Are you worried about the clergy? Are you worried about the fact that I will not have any women and men ever to lead my church again? Don't worry about it. I've got them. I'm in my church. I'm with my church. And I've got the leaders in my hand. There's a song that we used to sing. We don't sing it much anymore. Maybe you know it. It goes like this. And it really depicts the real presence of the risen Jesus in church. I believe in Jesus. I believe he is the son of God. I believe he died and rose again. And I believe that he paid for us all. And then here's the turning point. And I believe that he is here now, standing in our midst, here with the power to heal now and the grace to forgive. But I want to make something really clear. If there's somebody watching this right now on on video, or even for some of you that might be brand new to Christianity, and you're hearing me talking about Jesus rising from the dead and being here. Jesus's physical resurrected body is not here. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and where I go, you cannot come, not yet, But if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to be where I am. Many times in the Gospel of John, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm leaving and you can't come. So the Lord's physical resurrected body is not here, thankfully. It's at the right hand of God and Jesus is successfully ruling the universe and expanding his kingdom where he should be. He will come again in the flesh and we will touch his resurrected body when he comes a second time. But here's what I want to say, and we have to get this. Here's the mystery of the Trinity. With the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus ascended into heaven, Jesus is now present here in a unique way that's transforming for the church. This is the unique ministry of the Holy Spirit, to mediate the real presence of Jesus to his people. Or to use the words of Jesus, the Spirit will take from what is mine and he will make it known to you. So Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. And after he gave the disciples his great commission, he said, and lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So, great, we've covered that. The risen Jesus is alive, He's at the right hand of God, and he's here in church. But we can't see him. We can't touch him. So how in the world are we as Christians supposed to encounter the risen Jesus now before he arrives a second time? Well, our text gives us three beautiful ways. Number one, the text tells us that in our sorrow, 
we can expect to encounter Jesus as our walking partner, soul friend, and I might add, spiritual director. Did you notice from the story that before Jesus opens up the scriptures to them, he opens up them? Did you see that? Before he's the expositor or the preacher, he's the inquisitor. He asks a series of questions. And it doesn't matter to Jesus at all that their theology is half-baked or their doubts are unresolved. He deeply cares about them. He says, what are you guys talking about as you walk along? What's on your mind? What narrative is on spin cycle in your brain? Come on. Why your face is so downcast? And it says the two of them stop walking. This is an argument to say that they might have been two men because men cannot walk and talk at the same time. <laughs> Not that effectively anyway. Um, but I still do think it was Cleopas and his wife. They stopped walking and they looked at Jesus and they said, are you just visiting here? How is it possible that you don't know what's happened in Jerusalem? And he said, Jesus said, what things? He is not interested in preaching a sermon until he cracks open their hearts and their soil becomes ready for the sermon that he's about to preach. Oh, I just love this about Jesus. And so they said, well, about Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all the people. But our chief priests killed him. They crucified him. And then, here was the line, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now, the first time the word redeem or redemption or redeemer appears in the Old Testament, it's in the book of Exodus, and it has to do with Moses coming to redeem Israel. So their view of a redeemer or a Messiah was that somebody like Moses was going to come into uh, Roman-occupied territory and kick butt. Somebody like Moses who would come in, confront Pharaoh and say, let my people go, and that those words would be accompanied by 10 violent plagues that would crush the Egyptians. This is what these Israelites thought that the new kingdom was going to be like. Send us the Moses-like figure. Well, it was really their way of saying a crucified man is not our vision of a king. Our vision of a king does not involve crucifixion. Now, Jesus is going to set them straight, but I just have to say this first. Jesus, let, let's just say that you right now are really doubting this whole story. Let's just say you've been a Christian for a long time and you're, you're theologically deconstructing, and the pillars that once held up and propped your life mean nothing to you now. Do you know that that's okay? Because Jesus will come alongside you and he will hold on to you and he will say, let's talk about them one by one. What are your doubts? What's your narrative? Tell me what's going on. Jesus will love you and he will hold space for you. He will receive your story. He will walk with you even though your worldview might be truncated and might not be completely Christian. This is what Jesus does with us. He doesn't just show up and wham, here's my sermon. He shows up and says, let's have a conversation. And so, 
how can you and I expect right now the risen Jesus to meet us like he met Cleopas and his wife? Well, if Ben and I had coffee this week, and we brought the risen Jesus with us as we listened to one another's hearts, Jesus would present himself to us. Those that are with our kids right now, as they sit across the table from our five-year-olds and ask the five-year-olds, so are you having a good Easter so far? And they tell the teacher, the risen Jesus is actually touching that child. Jesus continues to minister to his church through us as we hold space for one another and particularly for those who might be struggling. Secondly, in our confusion, we can expect to encounter Jesus as our teacher as we read and listen to the scriptures. Now, after my first point, this needs to be reinforced, or you're going to think I'm just another postmodern progressive who all we care about is just tell us your story. You know, let's have a conversation. Just get it out. No, no, no. Yes, Jesus listens to their theology and he receives their story, but he doesn't let their story be the last word. He loves them too much just to let their story, which is wrong, be the ultimate story. How foolish you are, he says, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. In other words, you guys have grown up with the Hebrew scriptures. Could you not see that the Messiah King had to suffer and be crucified first before he entered into his glory? And then it says, then came the exposition of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus that caused their hearts to burn within them. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said about himself in all the scriptures. I don't know. I think that in the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be this long line of uh, expositors and homileticians and teachers and preachers that want Jesus to tell them what are the biblical texts in the Old Testament that you strung together in your famous Emmaus sermon. I know, I want to ask Jesus, did you even have time to get to Isaiah 53 about you being wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities? I'd like to ask Jesus if he talked about the ram caught in the thicket that Abraham sacrificed instead of his son Isaac. I'd like to ask Jesus, did you talk about the Passover lamb that was slain where the blood was applied to the house of every Israelite family? Did you talk about Judah offering himself as the vicarious sacrifice for Benjamin, the guilty one? Did you talk about water flowing from the rock, symbolizing the water that flowed out of your side when they pierced it? And Jesus, did you talk about Abigail swooping in to stop David on his murderous rampage to kill David, where she said no don't do it. There's another way forward, and it's not violence. And then she offered bread and raisin cakes to David, and he thought second about killing her husband. You see, until Jesus returns, there will never be a substitute for the proclamation of Jesus Christ from the scriptures in church. This is how Jesus manifests himself. Now, there are many theologians who believe that though uh, when we just read the Bible as individuals, that we 
experience God's life-transforming grace. The Spirit takes the Scripture and touches us, and we learn and we grow. But they also believe, and I believe with them that this is true, that the risen Jesus is uniquely present and uniquely manifests himself when the church gathers and a woman or man comes prepared to unleash the message that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ is coming again. I, I have come to see this in a fresh way since I've retired. Um, since being a young adult, I have been very involved on Sundays. I've been a pastor for over 40 years, but I'm now a parishioner and a very happy one. Thank you. And for the first time since being a very young man, I get to sit and receive the exposition of the scriptures into my life when I'm not somewhere preaching. And all I can say is that there are so many Sundays that I walk away from my church, Peace Portal Alliance, and I am saying in my heart, was not our heart, hearts burning within us as our pastor talked about Jesus from the law, the Psalms, the prophets, the gospels, and the epistles? And thirdly, finally, in our deep spiritual hunger, we can expect to encounter Jesus in the breaking of the bread. Now, you may have noticed in this story when it was being read that the, the revelation of Jesus Christ to this dear couple was a progressive one. In my opinion, this is the right kind of progressive theology. It was progressive. In other words, Jesus started out as a stranger, but he quickly became a travel companion. It's like, oh, you're quite nice to be with. He became like a spiritual director. He began asking questions and really listening. But then he moved from being an inquisitor, somebody opening them up, to an expositor, somebody opening up the scriptures and declaring it to them. And then, finally, he enters their home as a guest, but he quickly becomes the host. And with each transition, there's something new to see about Jesus. There's something new to about Jesus, and there's something fresh to receive from him. He moves from being the guest to the host. Do you know that in church, when we gather like this, we might think that we are the ones hosting Jesus, and we beg him to come, and our worship originates from us, and the arrow points heavenward, and it's like, here we are, Lord, we are here to praise you, and he is the object of our worship, and all those things are good and right, and we should continue to do it. But do you know that it's more theologically accurate to say that we don't host Jesus in church? He hosts us. And that, yes, this is a glorious uh, picture of worship, but so is this. Feed me till I want no more. It was 20 years ago that I experienced what could only be described as a Eucharistic conversion. My spiritual eyes were opened in the sacramental breaking of the bread. Like most of you, I grew up in a beautiful evangelical tradition. It's the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Um, we, we celebrated the Lord's Supper like you do, and it was always very meaningful, but it became very more, much more meaningful. Verse 30 says, when Jesus was at the table, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, 
and gave it to them. Do you recognize those four verbs? Just a few chapters earlier, Jesus with his disciples at the Last Supper took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. And when Jesus did this with Cleopas and his wife, two things happened. Number one, they recognized in that moment the real presence of the risen Jesus. He was in their midst. And secondly, Jesus disappeared from their midst because his pastoral ministry was completed. In other words, Jesus wasn't free to leave their presence until the word was burning in their hearts and bread was in their hands. It was about 15 years ago now that Myrna and I left one church for another, but in between those two ministries, we had almost a whole year sabbatical. I needed a sabbatical. I had been in the one church for 17 years, and it was a really good run, and and we loved our time there, but at the end of it, I was a pretty tired, broken, discouraged man. I didn't realize just how much healing my heart needed. So we thought, are we going to actually go to church while I'm on sabbatical? Nobody's paying me to do this anymore. And we decided that we would. But we should go to a church different than the one we normally go to. So we decided to go to an Anglican church, to a highly liturgical church. And so we decided to go to St. John's, Shaughnessy, when it still was Shaughnessy. And week after week, we sat where we're sitting now, and we walked through the liturgy, and we heard the choir, and we heard the sermon, and we went forward for the Eucharist. I'm not sure if you've ever been to an Anglican church, but there's a, a, uh, there's a parade of beggars in the bread line that come forward to an altar, and you kneel down, and somebody serves you the bread, and then somebody else comes along and serves you the cup. And of course, this was before COVID, where we weren't so concerned about catching things. And they would take a goblet of wine and literally pour it into your mouth. And then you'd get up, and you'd walk back to your seat, and you would watch the rest of your brothers and sisters parading forward to encounter Christ in the Lord's Supper. And after I finished being served, I sat down and sitting directly in front of me on the aisle was an elderly woman. I don't know. She looked like she was in her 90s. Now, I have to be careful how I speak like this because some of you are in your 90s and you're still whippersnappers. <laughs> but she wasn't. <laughs> and she was struggling. And she could not get up. And she could not enter the parade. She could not come forward. There was no one to serve her until out of the corner of my eye, I saw a deacon get up, go to the altar, get some bread, get a chalice, and come. And he knelt down in front of that very elderly woman, held up the bread in front of her face, and said, this is the body of Christ, broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And she took the bread, and she ate it. And then he held up the chalice, and he said, this cup is the new covenant, and my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this as often as you will in remembrance of me. And he tenderly poured it, brought it towards her mouth and helped her sip the cup. And that's when it happened. My eyes were opened, and I saw what was really going on in the spiritual realm. That deacon, that moment, for me, became an icon 
of Jesus Christ, who was present in his church, not just to serve us through the preaching of the word, which is absolutely indispensable, and not just through the one-on-one relationships that we have, which is indispensable, but through the mystery of the Lord's Supper. I saw Jesus serving that old woman. I felt Jesus serving me, a broken pastor who had become quite cynical. And I saw Jesus serving his worldwide church. Then they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. How can we expect to encounter Jesus when we cannot touch him and we cannot see him? In our sorrow, we can expect to counter, encounter him as our walking partner. In our confusion, we can expect to encounter him as our teacher and preacher. And in our deep spiritual hunger, we can expect to encounter Jesus in the breaking of the bread. And what happens to a church that encounters Jesus like this? Well, we can't stay in church. With their hearts burning and their eyes opened, their feet were also deployed and they went running back into the city, declaring to their friends, it's true, Christ has risen from the dead. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.